On May 23rd in This Week in Time Travel, take the red pill and uncover the truth with us in Extremis. Whoa. Chip, good to see ya. Alyssa, am I really seeing you, or are you just a clever simulation? I don't know. We can try reciting numbers off at the same time. Okay, so we're going to try to sync our conversation over Skype, and we're going to try to... This sounds like a podcasting nightmare, a technical impossibility. I think we're just going to have to live in the assumption, the happy, ignorant assumption that we are, in fact, real. What do you think? So Chip has opted to take the blue pill. And next week, let's see if I take the red pill and just uncover the truth of, are we really in a computer simulation? I, all I'm saying is I'm not a big fan of the term red pill, so I'll just uh, take my blue pill and be happy with it. You know what? I will take my movie directed by trans women and run with it and take it from the MRAs as far as I possibly can. There we go. Hey, good news. Uh, Doctor Who is still relatively popular. Extremis, which we will be talking about shortly, was the third most watched show of the day with uh, 4.16 million people watching overnight. More people were watching Britain's Got Talent for some stupid reason, and more people were watching Pointless Celebrities for some stupid reason, but hey, Doctor Who's still doing well. Yay. Yep. Which is always good news. I like it when it does well. And then, of course, we're going to go on a long break before we come back with any more new Doctor Who, but hey, we'll be going into that break strong. Yeah. So other exciting news. There's not a lot to cover this week, but there's a new book coming out called Now We Are 600. It's going to be a poetry book written by James Goss, and it's going to be filled with all of these Doctor Who related poems. And it's going to be illustrated by Russell T. Davies, which is just absolutely adorable. His illustrations are really, really cute. Um, it'll be coming out on September 13th in time for National Poetry Day. Uh, Chip, do you mind if I read one of the poems for you? Because I think it's really sweet. Absolutely, Alyssa. Let's do it. I went into a box and it wasn't a box. I asked the box to go wandering. We could go to planets, we could visit stars, or Tuesday. That box could go anywhere at all. And so we did. I almost want to hear um, the Oodcast's haiku music uh, ethereally playing in the background, even though that wasn't a haiku. So this is a, <laughs> this is basically a takeoff on A.A. A. Milne styles of poetry with the Now We Are Six. Uh, so I'll be interested to see how well this does in America because uh, most Americans read the Pooh books and were conditioned by Disney to want Winnie the Pooh stories. And if they were anything like me when I was a kid, I just sort of flipped through Now We Are Six looking for Winnie the Pooh related poems and just ignored everything else. But I'm pretty sure that uh, these books are much more beloved and part of the uh, cultural DNA uh, in Britain. Uh, and for this to be a parody and to have RTD doodles in it, well, the proper cartoons, it's going to be great. Yeah, I think it's just going to be, I think even if Americans won't identify with the source material as much, I think it's just going to be really cute and they'll enjoy it. 
Speaking of cute things, uh, BBC has got another mobile game out for Doctor Who called Time Vortex 360. Uh, Chip, have you had a time to play this at all? I have. Um, and it's, yeah, yeah. Cute's the word Cute. for it. It's not. It's not my big thing. It's. It's. Uh, it plays through a web browser. You don't have to be uh, in the UK to actually play this. This is uh, available to anyone across the globe. But it's got some pretty nice graphics, and it's basically sort of like one of these endless runner games, like Temple Run, where by tilting your phone, you travel your TARDIS through the uh, time vortex picking up things, dodging obstacles, and playing and playing and playing and playing until you crash too many times or something like that. So it's a diversion. It's a free diversion. But it sounds it's, nice. It's got Murray Gold soundtrack and everything. It's basically one of those games that you see kids playing when they're careening around the sidewalk, running into every adult that's there. So going to be kind of cute. Probably going to bruise your shins a lot from dodging uh, any of the children in your family who want to play it. So right. uh, provide to the younglings at your own risk. <laughs> you said younglings. You're a Star what? Wars nerd. Hey, you just finished a Clone Wars marathon. Do not go nerd shaming me, sir. I have the text messages. I have the receipts. I'll be good. I doubt it. But let's move on to our review of Extremis. Well, we were talking last week, uh, both with each other and uh with uh when i was talking to eric and kyle of the writer's room that we were sort of expecting a bit of a turn from the meat and potatoes doctor who of the last uh five weeks and boy howdy we are so far away from meat and potatoes doctor who this is your hipster bar deconstructed fancily presented meat and potatoes like we have gone full-on conceptual experimental back almost to something like listen not nearly as good as Heaven Sent, but very, very conceptual in what it is doing. Doctor Who is in the Matrix and not the Doctor Who Matrix, the the, the movie Matrix. Anyways, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's really playing with that uh, virtual reality, are we all in a simulation genre, uh, which Doctor Who surprisingly hasn't done very often. No, I have seen some feedback uh, from people who sort of rejected that notion um, sort of entirely. They thought it was a silly, they thought it was a silly idea. It, none of this was real. What a cheat, you know, kind of reaction. But I was primed to appreciate this one right from the get-go because, and I'm going to drop a spoiler for an almost 20-year-old episode of the science fiction show Babylon 5. So if you are obsessive about that one TV show, uh, fast forward like one minute into this podcast. There's an episode of Babylon 5 called The Deconstruction of Falling Stars. It's the fourth season finale, and it takes slices of life from the far future of the Babylon 5 universe and looks at the impact of the characters in the series and how they impacted future history. And there is one 15-minute segment of the episode where a fascist government creates holographic simulations of the hero characters in an effort to create artificial intelligence, evil versions of those characters for propaganda purposes, to prove that the these legendary figures weren't all that good. The catch is that one of the characters, the security chief, 
they did too good a job with the AI programming and he achieves a certain amount of sentience and transmits all of the plans of the evil fascist government to the uh, rebellion against the other folks. And that's the end of the story. Aside from the fact that the audience knows right from the beginning in this segment that the characters are reconstructions, they're AI hologram types. Other than that, the conceit is exactly the same as this episode of Doctor Who. Not only was I not surprised by the reveal that everybody in the uh, main storyline was artificial, I was like, ah, this is pleasantly familiar. I was definitely surprised by the reveal. I was not expecting it at all. And I'd actually accidentally seen a spoiler mentioning the words, it was a simulation. And I still did not put it all together that they hadn't simply slipped into a simulation, but that we were watching them as simulations, uh, acting out uh, this entire scenario at the behest of the aliens. I think, you know, the pushback that we have seen about, well, none of it really happened at all is a little bit unfair. I mean, certainly that has been a problem in some episodes in the past, but this isn't Journey to the Center of the TARDIS or, to a lesser extent, The Wedding of River Song. The events that happen in the virtual reality directly push the events that are leading us into the next episode. The simulations become self-aware, and other than the doctor, everyone else decides to kill themselves or Nardole and Bill get destroyed. The doctor, though, becomes self-aware enough to fight back and send a message out of the simulation to his real persona, warning him about the impending invasion. And that sets in motion everything that's going to happen in the pyramid at the end of the world. So the events that happen in the reality directly influence the events that are happening here. Um, I think one of the things that sort of is tilting my mind a little bit about whether or not I like this episode, because I'm still sort of up on the fence about it, is uh, Moffat's interview with the Radio Times. Mm. Um, and I'd love if we could put that in show notes, because I think it's such an important addendum to understanding extremis and what's going into creating this episode. Because yes, these are concepts that Moffat has played with before. You know, he did say the whole idea of a simulation becoming aware of its simulation um, is very like what he did um, in Forest of the Dead when the, uh, Donna's children become aware of the fact that they must also be simulated children, that they must not be real. Um, but I think that he did something very unique in not just simply playing around with people being dropped into simulations or virtual reality not being aware of it. But what would a simulated doctor do once he became aware of the fact that he was a simulation being created by aliens to figure out how to fight the real doctor? And I think that was particularly an interesting point to it. What I will say is one critique of this is narratively, I thought this episode was a bit all over the place. I liked the scenes with Missy, but they were interspersed very randomly in the episode in a way that didn't really make sense to me. It felt like the story kept lagging when that happened. It felt like it was sort of intended to be either a profound flashback where the doctor is learning something at that moment that's supposed to help him fight the aliens. But I didn't find the dialogue at that moment particularly profound or impactful moving forward. 
or it's intended to be build up to the big surprise reveal at the end that Missy is in the vault and maybe they'll need to pull her out of the vault to help them fight the monks in the next episode. But that all seems like a lot of exercise in the pursuit of nothing that was very surprising. Like, we'd already guessed that Missy was in the vault for a while. This was not a particularly surprising reveal, and dropping it in this episode felt very out of place, like trying to build up to this big shock reveal that... And it sort of landed a little bit with a thud. So I, I love seeing Michelle Gomez and everything, but narratively, this felt very out of place for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I didn't feel sort of disconnected from it, but there were aspects of the story that I wasn't completely satisfied with. We got a lot of exposition dump on the planet of the ex- executioners that filled in some of the gaps on how Nardole reconnected with the doctor although i'm not sure that that jibes with uh dr mysterio um presumably that was hap- that was happening at the same time that the doctor needed to be guarding the vault i'm not sure but by and large i thought that it was worth it uh when we got to the point at the end where the doctor's conversation with missy about what it means to be good when no one's watching basically comes back and the doctor simulation realizes that nobody's watching and nobody's will, but, you know, he is still the doctor or somebody who is a really, really good copy of the doctor. And as the doctor, he's got to do this thing. So I thought that that was, that paid off fairly well for me. One thing, and it's a shame that Tom couldn't be with us on this one, because on Tom's uh, previous appearances on here, uh, he, he's made a strong case for, you know, the Doctor feeling like the Doctor again in the show. He he very much appreciates when the Doctor is front and center in the story. This might have been an, uh, an episode that he and I would have had a bit of an argument over, because Bill and Nardole had some good bits, but this was very much... The doctor as the doctor, the doctor as a hero. You know, I I like having that spread around a little bit more than this. This was all about who the doctor is, and Bill and Nardo weren't all that important to the story. Basically, yeah. Though I did like the bits that we got with Bill and Nardol. I do like Nardol being a secret badass. Again, it's- <laughs> or or claiming that he's a secret badass and then going ah. Yes, yes. You know, he's trying to be a secret badass. You know, I don't I don't know if he'll actually follow through on it, but he's trying so hard. Uh, and I thought it was lovely to have uh, Bill really being in her element here. Um, I did especially like that we saw a moment with her earlier in the episode where she's on a date with a girl. And I've expressed before I was a little worried about how they were going to... Uh, reference her sexuality as an ongoing basis on the show, whether it was going to be one off for the first episode and, or if they were going to carry it through. Uh, now I'll admit though, there's a lot that confused me about this episode. And I have to ask you, because this was actually a shock for me. Did you get in the pilot that Bill wasn't out to her mom? I, I didn't pay that much attention, but at the time that was the, that was the impression that I had. See, I did not get that at all, and a lot of my friends on Twitter didn't get that either. Uh, I thought that Bill's sarcastic comment was something intended for her mom to hear, like a reminder of, I'm not actually interested in guys, mom. Like, that's, that's how that moment came across to me. So everything that happened in this episode where... 
Bill was not out to her mom and the whole joke was oh did you bring a guy home well actually i brought a girl home and oh no it's fine you're not on a date with anybody you have a girl home like that really confused the heck out of me Mm -hmm. um it's also a little bit eyebrow raising for me like from a real world perspective i get that coming out is a process like a process i am still going through and Telling everybody in your life about your sexuality is an ongoing negotiation of what you feel comfortable with and how you feel family members and friends are going to react and respond. But this was a very discordant note for me because Bill is so out everywhere else about her sexuality that I'm wondering what they intend to do with this on a long-term basis. Like, you don't throw something in like that unless you intend to make it a part of the story moving forward. Uh, And I'm just a little bit wary of how this is going to evolve moving forward, whether it's just going to be a joke piece of, well, not, I'm glad you're not dating any boys. Hey, mom, by the way, I'm dating girls and making a joke out of that. Um, Especially because a lot of people had some concerns with how those jokes played out over the course of this episode. Yeah, and then you pile on to that the joke of the Pope in the bedroom. Yeah. So the and then the gag the gag being that uh, Penny, who Bill has brought home, is fairly clearly coming to terms with her own sexuality. At least that's the way that I read this, that Penny is new to dating girls and is questioning and all of this other stuff. So, of course, ha, 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 a, a, a complete Catholic delegation, including the Pope, just sort of walks in and just lays, you know, it's, it's, it's a big Catholic guilt gag. On the one hand, that is actually funny. On the other hand, it's almost the show making fun of the gay people. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I'll be honest, it did not twig with me at first that this would be a disturbing moment. Like, I sort of, the first time I watched it, I viewed it as they're home for a date and interrupted by the most Doctor Who thing that could possibly happen. The Doctor lands in her bedroom and out walks the flipping Pope interrupting the date. And then the second time I watched it, it hit me that Penny is not just talking about, you know, uncertainty with dating Bill. She's talking about being uncertain in her own identity, her own sexuality. And that hadn't really processed with me the first time I watched it. Um, I was mostly sad that Bill's date had gone poorly. I didn't realize quite the position that But Penny she's was got another chance. She she's in. got another chance. She's got another chance to get it right. And I really, really hope Penny comes back and we see that happen. But it does sort of feel like... You know, Doctor Who's saying, ha ha, isn't it funny? Now Penny feels uncomfortable with her own sexuality and going on a date with Bill because the Pope walked in. Like, that, on a second read, yeah, actually makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's, you know, it, it is it is Stephen Moffat humor. Um, it is, it's very coupling humor. Mm, it's, it's irreverent. It is irreverent towards both Catholicism and and towards the sexual orientation stuff. Um, it's mm-hmm. 
And I don't know that it makes me feel uncomfortable, but it does. I can I can see where it would make someone where it would make someone feel uncomfortable because it's uh, an atheist straight guy making that joke. It's funny. And as he says in the Radio Times interview, he's trying to be respectful, but not reverent. And that's a very important distinction. And I'm glad that he's mentioning that. You know, I think that there's really been a problem where Moffat has tried to be irreverent and has really more come off as offensive. And I think he's very aware of that line right now and he's trying to walk it. And it was very interesting to watch how he handled that with the treatment of religion and Catholicism in Extremis, because on the one hand, he's being very irreverent towards a symbol, an institution, a person, towards the Catholic Church, the Pope, um, and the Vatican. But trying to walk that line between irreverence and offense gets a little bit tricky. Neither of us is Catholic, but Chip, I believe you're more religious um, than I am. How did you feel Moffat handled that dis- distinction in Extremis? I thought he did fine. I think I thought he did fine. Mm-hmm. When you and I've talked about this on Two Minute Time Lord before. Uh, Religion is sort of the third rail of Doctor Who because this is a show that's all about history and there are some places that you can't take the TARDIS without actually making a statement about real people's religious beliefs. Um, So there are two ways to handle it. You either ignore religion or you sidestep it in some way by making a joke or talking about the cultural institution thereof i thought given the fact that you're turning cardinals into uh open mouth zombie uh corpses and you're you've got the pope walking through uh random bedrooms and things like that i thought on balance it was respectful um but you know it's not my it's not my church so i can't print i can't make too great a pronouncement there Yeah, I think the one thing that's going to raise eyebrows is the treatment of Pope Benedict. And it's a very touchy thing that he's done, because not only has he referenced a real life pope in the past, the pope that had a very scandalous reputation, but he's also sort of merged two stories together because there are sort of stories from, I think, the 1300s about a woman pope. This is Internet search and Radio Times articles being written to, you know, provide answers to this episode. So correct me if I'm wrong, historians. I'm sure that I probably do not have all my facts straight on this. But there are some stories about a woman pope, which most people now believe were fictional creations. And it feels like Moffat has blended those two together. And the only mild concern for me about this is that, of of course, he talks about a woman pope in a very sexual way with the doctor. And just why? Why do we do it? Why does every potentially historic female figure need to be somebody the doctor has romanced? Like, can't they just stand on their own as important historical figures? Sorry, that's just one of my pet peeves. And it's just raised a raised a bit of an eyebrow for me when I was watching this episode of really, we're going to do this again. OK, yeah. you know, we're talking about we're, we we are honestly talking about side notes for the whole for the whole story. There's a big plot. There's a big vulture, virtual reality thing. There's a big arc for the 
doctor overcoming um, his blindness and his uh, and despair and things like that. There's some really chilling stuff that happens at CERN. Uh, and I love the I love the explanation that the doctor gives at the end about what's going on. You know, it's not suicide; it's rebellion. You know, the, uh, all this stuff. On balance, I think that this is a really good story. It's a really creepy and experimental story, and I really enjoyed it. But I think a lot is going to depend on the execution of the next couple of episodes. Now that the right. now that the real threat is the the real threat is coming. We've had we've had a one hell of a prelude. Um so I think this episode will be better or worse regarded as a result of the um next couple. I'm almost reminded of how I reacted to hear me out, hear me out. The end of time part 1 which was a royal mess of an episode. And I remember reviewing that one going, you know, I don't know how to I don't know what to make of this episode. It all is going to depend on part two. It will not surprise you to know that I actually liked part two and it sort of redeemed part one for me. And, uh, you know, send your cards and letters. I've heard them all before. But um, I kind of liked extremists kind of a lot. And yet I. I also feel like I may have to revisit that assessment based on the next couple. I think I'm still firmly in the middle. I don't really know how I feel about this episode. There's a lot that I do like in it. I like the concepts that it's tackling. I like the arc that it is setting up, I think. Um, I like seeing Missy back. But there's enough eyebrow-raising things in this episode that... I can't fully commit to saying that I like it at the moment. Like it's an episode that I watch and I feel a bit more conflicted every time I go through it. So I think it's up to the next two episodes of this three episode arcs to see uh, if they can stick the landing. Yeah. I will say though, though that I am really, really happy that I think, I think Moffat has paced this exactly right. And he was intentional about it as he described in the radio times interview Five solid episodes of beginning, middle, end Doctor Who storytelling, archetypal Doctor Who storytelling, and now we're going to do some weird stuff. That works for me. This week on The Incomparable Network, the first family of Doctor Who podcasting, Verity's Erica Ensign and Radio Free Scarrow's Stephen Schapansky, resume their sequential walk through classic Who with The War Machines in Lazy Doctor Who. The Incomparable team spend an hour dissecting a two-minute Star Trek Discovery trailer on The Incomparable. And Jason Snell finds a Voyager episode he actually likes on Random Trek. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Alyssa, I'm struggling with something. Let's hear it, Chip. Uh, you got a couple of hours because I'm actually struggling with a lot. But if we need to narrow it down, uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about what happens when we're out of step.
We've got 10 minutes. Let's hear it. Well, maybe we can do it in five. I don't know. So I'm uh, I'm an old, lame, white guy. I had never heard the expression yucking your yum before. And then um, Eric and Kyle uh, used it on a recent Doctor Who the Writer's Room. And, you know, it's all about don't it's all about the process of making people feel unhappy about something that they formerly felt happy about. And, you know, we have a group of, we sort of have a core group of Doctor Who fans that we talk to a whole lot. And in those conversations, I sort of revealed that sometimes I have a hard time with how we talk about the episodes we like and the episodes we don't like. Um, you know, um, I almost feel like if I'm out of step with uh, my fellow fans in my core group that I'm being judged for it. Have you ever felt that way? I think I have felt unsure about the way I feel about episodes if I'm out of step with the majority opinion on it. But I'm also of the generation that grew up where it was a lot easier to find your niche of people that liked the same thing that you liked that not everybody else liked and also developed a language about how to talk about it, about we are the trash of the thing. We may recognize that it's not great, that it's trash, but we are the trash of the time monster. We are the trash of the end of time. We will follow that episode that nobody else likes to the end of the earths and talk about why we love it. Uh, we have our problematic faves. We just have that one thing that we just treasure. It's just our OTP. It's our son. It's our our little thing that we are just going to love when nobody else loves them. I think the bigger problem that I've had when I've been online and talking about TV shows and movies that I love is I'm innocently expressing my own personal preference or opinion and someone comes along trying to tell me that my opinion is shit, that thing is shit, you should not like it it's terrible and actively trying to trash it and make me change my opinion about it because they seem to personally dislike the fact that I like this thing that, to me, is something that I really do not like. If I'm asking for your opinion, it'll be pretty clear that I'm asking for your opinion. <laughs> Otherwise, don't trash the thing. You can have a discussion with me, but don't come along telling me that the time monster is shit. I only get to say the time monster is shit when I'm talking about how much I love this thing. <laughs> Well, uh, aside from the fact that I'm going to be uh, judiciously bleeping a lot uh, more than I expected to be in the edit for this episode. Um, Oops, sorry. Where I get sort of uh, taken aback is if I am reading Twitter right after an episode's come out. You know, I take it as, if not wholly writ, I take it as, oh, let's call it received fan wisdom, that Peter Capaldi's a darned good doctor. A darn good actor, and a uh, and the twelfth Doctor is a fascinating character. He may not be everybody's Doctor. Newsflash: the tenth Doctor is still my Doctor, but Capaldi's pretty awesome. And then I will flip through Twitter, and somebody will say, for example, that their 
their favorite thing about the 12th Doctor is going to be uh, the upcoming Christmas episode, you know? And I I have this sort of bifurcated response where, A, how could you say that? Peter Capaldi is great. But B, everybody's got a right to their own opinion. I just sort of get caught in that in a small fan group fan group circle where people will say with strong opinion strong opinion that this episode was great or this episode was bad and there are other people in that fandom circle that have opposite opinions to that and we should be we should be all grown up enough to recognize that there's an implied disclaimer there in my opinion but there's something about Doctor Who fandom, the sort of insularity of it in some respects, the, the the tightness of the fandom groups that we're involved with, that always make that process a little uncomfortable for me. I think it's always going to be a little uncomfortable. And discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing because everyone perceives things different ways. I think the thing that I'm coming out with from this episode is that sometimes I process things slightly more delayed because I'm hung up on something that happened five minutes earlier and I didn't recognize what happened. Someone else comes in later and they mention something that I didn't catch the first time around, that I didn't feel bothered by the first time around, and it makes me a little uncomfortable that I did not notice that, that I did not feel uncomfortable about it, that I just didn't simply get it the first time around. But it does make me revise my opinion on something, that I do look at it in a new light and go, oh yeah, actually, that doesn't sit quite as well with me as it did the first time around. I think we have very much an aversion to discomfort. It's a, it's absolutely natural. Nobody wants to feel uncomfortable. But I think it's a good thing when you're talking about something in a group space. Just learning how to hold on to that feeling and let go of it when it's unwarranted, but let it change your thought process if it is warranted. That doesn't mean going with the crowd always. It means finding new opinions, processing those, and thinking about whether you need to change the way you're thinking about an issue that may not impact you personally. I think that's been something I've been learning a lot with Bill, that I come at this from a queer woman perspective, but I do not come at these episodes as a woman of color. I can't. That's a perspective that is very far outside of anything that I could feel personally. But I do try to follow women of color and I do try to listen to the way they're reacting to this episode, uh, to Bill, and learn from the commentary that they are making about it. I think to pull us back to the broader conversation that we're getting to, it comes back to specificity. Are we talking about whether something is good or bad when we mean that it's something that we like or dislike? Or are we talking about something that's good or bad because it reflects opinions and commentary that may be harmful to some communities? And in 140 characters in a social media environment, 
or even just in a friend group where you've all had a couple of drinks and now you're talking about this episode from the show that you all like and feel very passionate about, specificity is a hard thing to come by. It's hard to be specific when you are casual, when you are relaxed, when you are character constricted. But I think it comes down to talking about what exactly is it that you are reacting to in an episode. Are you reacting out of personal preference or are you reacting out of something that you feel is a broader problem? You know, this isn't a question of do we like the 12th doctor's jokes or not? Is it a question of do we think the reflection of Bill's sexuality is harmful or not? I think that's the important way to distinguish between is this opinion that we really need to get into and debate, or is this something that we should sit back and learn from other people about how to react to it? Yeah. And these conversations are so much easier for me about, I don't know, Star Wars, you know, or uh, or Voltron Legendary Defender or any other property that I'm into, because I'm not involved in a fandom community for those things the way I am with Doctor Who. And suddenly everything feels much more personal. And that's, you know, that's a that's a bit of a challenge. It requires a, it requires me to thicken my skin a little bit, but also to remember that when somebody is being adamant about how awful they think the Tenth Doctor is, that they are not passing a criticism of me because I happen to like the Tenth Doctor very much. Thank you. <laughs> it's also, I think, important to recognize when someone is just being honest and sharing their opinion versus actively trying to bring someone down, you know, expressing Most your opinion. Most people are not telling me, you're a bad person for liking the Tenth Doctor. Right. And the people that are, because there are a few of those on Twitter and Tumblr, just deserve to be muted and ignored because shout into a void about how much you want to try to change my opinion. Unless you're somebody I like and respect and know personally, and we can have an actual conversation about this, simply on the thing that I love is not acceptable. There goes another edit. Gender <laughs> plays a big role in these kinds of conversations too. Absolutely. And this is something I've been struggling a lot with because even though I want to be specific and talk about is this thing good or bad or is this simply something I like or dislike, women are very much taught to couch their opinions by saying, well, this is just my personal opinion or this is just something personally I like or dislike. And sometimes it's necessary to be upfront about what it is that you're talking about and be straightforward and not couch your opinion. And, and certainly not apologize for it. Exactly. Because we are taught to apologize a lot for our opinions. So I think there's an extra hurdle that women have to overcome in terms of talking about our opinions and standing up for what we know is our opinion and to stand by it and not apologize for it. And also make sure that you're not actively trying to bring somebody down. Yeah. As a as a reviewer, as a podcaster, I tend to try to not sort of do the overt, this is just my opinion disclaimer kind of thing. But I do try to talk about how I react to television and the Doctor Who episodes and stuff in terms of this episode made me feel good. This is what I liked about this episode. I'm a little gun shy about making grand pronouncements about uh, whether an episode is good or not, because I know somebody listening to me is certainly going to disagree with me. I think I'm always going to err on the side of 
owning my subjectivity. But the only thing that I won't own my subjectivity to is that The End of Time is actually very, very good television. As long as nobody comes after my very real and true opinion that the Time Monster is absolutely brilliant Third Doctor material, I think we can be friends. So next week, we're going to spin off of this conversation a little bit. We're going to have Graham Burke and Shannon Dohar around to start up a new segment on This Week in Time Travel, the Department of Received Fan Wisdom. Next week, we'll also be reviewing The Pyramid at the End of the World by Peter Harness and Stephen Moffat. Thanks for joining us for This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. On Twitter, you can find us at DRWho this week. You can follow Chip at numeral two minute time lord. And you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. We're on Facebook too. Thanks to Jason Snell for running the Incomparable Network. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our theme music and to David J. Lore for our podcast logo. We will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye.